Last week we looked at the first five verses of Joshua chapter 3. We're going to read those again right now along with the sixth verse and then we'll press on a little further into Joshua. So let's start reading in Joshua chapter 3 verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and he and all the sons of Israel set out from Shittim and came to the Jordan and they lodged there before they crossed. And it came about at the end of three days that the officers went through the midst of the camp and they commanded the people saying, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God with a Levitical priest carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. However, there shall be between you and it a distance of about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you've never passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over ahead of the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went ahead of the people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that is before us right now. And as we've opened your word, we ask that you would open our hearts and our spirits and our minds to hear everything that the Lord would have to say to us, everything you want to speak to us. And as we've read your word, we ask the Holy Spirit, you would now come and read our hearts. You know what we have need of. We pray even that the word of God would read us this morning and that it would be like the scalpel of a surgeon going to that very deep place, dealing with things that need to be cut out, things that need to be corrected, things that need to be strengthened and sewed up and mended and healed. You know each individual heart. You know it needs to happen in our hearts today. And so, Holy Spirit, we're coming before you. And we ask that you would come and teach us. Jesus said you would, that you are the teacher of all things. I submit my thoughts to you and my mouth. We ask that every word that comes from this mouth would be from the throne of God and not of man. We want to hear from you, Lord. We believe that your word is not only living and active, but it is inerrant and infallible, and that we ought to base the totality of our lives on it. So talk to us about it now, Lord. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, last week, as I said, we talked about the first five verses of Joshua, and we find the children of Israel camped out on the banks of the Jordan River. It's been some journey to get there. It started 500 years ago with promises made to Abraham. And then we had the Exodus generation that came out of Egypt, and they came to the border of the promised land, and they could have entered in, but because of unbelief, they wouldn't enter in. They simply would not believe the Lord, and so they got afraid, and they didn't enter into the promises. And so what was left for them, refusing what God wanted for them, was to wander in the wilderness until they died. And so that Exodus generation wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and they all died off. But the ones who were under 20 years of age, when they were first turned away from the promised land because of unbelief, they're the new generation. And they're the Jordan generation. They're the generation that is going to go into the land. The previous generation failed because of unbelief. This generation, having seen the results of a wandering in the wilderness, are zealous now to obey the Lord, to be obedient. They want to be in the place where the Lord wants them to be. They saw what it was like for the previous generation who just wouldn't go where God wanted them to be. And they saw that generation reap the consequences of that and the death and the destruction. And now they're saying in their hearts, we want to go into the fullness. We want what the Lord has for us. Nothing more, but nothing less. And now they find themselves camped out on the banks of the Jordan River. And as we discussed last week, they're camped out there for three days. For three days because God is letting them see the enormity of the problem that is before them. Before they could get into the promises, they had to get across that river Jordan. And God camped them out there for three days that they might see the impossibility of it. How strong that flow was as the river was in the flood season and it's overflowing their banks. Three days to come to the realization that, man, we can't do this ourselves. We don't have the resources. We don't have the wherewithal. We don't have the know-how. We cannot do this in and of ourselves. It would have exhausted their efforts in three days. And then Joshua said to them in verse 5, Consecrate yourselves, because tomorrow the Lord is going to do wonders among you. 
And there's a key. Before they would experience the fullness of what God has for them, they were called to consecrate themselves, to purify themselves, to sanctify themselves, to put off the junk and, and the dirty stuff and the foul stuff, the, the stuff that we know isn't pleasing the Lord, to put it off and to put on the person of Jesus Christ that they might experience the fullness of what God has for them. Now, that's what the book of Joshua is about, laying hold of the fullness of life in God, everything that the Lord has for us, not settling for less, but pressing in and moving on into all that the Lord has ordained for your life. And we read in Ephesians 1, 3, that God has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places through Christ Jesus. All those blessings are already ours because of the cross of Christ Jesus. Positionally, it is accomplished. The goal of the Christian life is to bring the practical in line with the positional. To lay hold of by faith what God has already accomplished by the cross for you is the goal of the Christian life. And the book of Joshua is just about that very thing. And it is about victorious Christian living. Unfortunately, and this is not the way it ought to be, so many Christians live a defeated life. They're Christians by profession, and they may actually have been born again. They might have salvation, but they're not walking in the abundant life. They haven't laid hold of the fullness of the victory of the cross. They're not walking in everything that the Lord has for them, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Somewhere, somehow, for some reason, they've settled for less. And God has a banqueting table set for them. And they're somehow trying to be satisfied just snacking over in the corner. And they're not getting the victory. And there's defeat after defeat after defeat. And there's disillusionment. And that's not God's will for your life. Yes, in this world we will have trouble. That is this world. Jesus said so. But then we are to take heart because he has overcome this world. And when we are in him and we walk in the abundant life, we don't sweat the things of this world because we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. And it is possible in the Lord to live a victorious life over sin and the enemy in the world and all those things that would so easily entangle us and seek to drag us away from all that the Lord has for us. And so the book of Joshua is just about that the victorious Christian life, and laying hold of the fullness of the life in Christ. But we find ourselves with the children of Israel on the east side of the Jordan River, not yet entering into the promises. And all that separates them is that river. Now, the river is an actual geographical location. I've been there numerous times myself. I've seen the Jordan River. I've been in the Jordan River. It is an actual geographical, physical location. This is not allegory. This is a historical account. But the New Testament tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that the things were, that were written in the Old Testament are instructive for you and I. That there's much to be gleaned from these historical accounts. And so the Jordan River, by way of analogy, points to some realities in the Christian life. It becomes a symbol for some things in the Christian life for you and I. It's literal, physical, historical, but it holds symbolic importance as we think about what it means to live the Christian life. Now, the first thing that we think about when we think about the Jordan River by way of analogy in our lives is a strong flow. And we talked about this in previous weeks, that it was a strong flow that had them effectually cut off from the promises of God. It had them hemmed in and cut off. Now, the reason that they were on this side of the Jordan, when God initially wanted them on that side, was because of bad decisions. The previous generation decided to disobey the Lord. They didn't believe the Lord. They didn't do what the Lord had asked them and was willing to help them do. And so now they find themselves on the wrong side of that strong flow. The promise and the blessings are on the west side of the Jordan. They find themselves here. Now, in the Christian life, there's many times where we make bad decisions. And oftentimes, those bad decisions have consequences. It could be analogous to a strong flow that hems us in and cuts us off from the promises of God. We got into a relationship we weren't supposed to get into. And now we're just caught up in the flow of that thing and we're not sure how to get out. And we know that the blessings aren't here. The blessings are over there. But we're all caught up in this thing. We got involved in some sin that we knew at the beginning we shouldn't get involved in and we knew it was seductive and, and that it was captivating and it captured us. And now there's a hook in your flesh. 
and you know that by that decision you've effectually removed yourself from the place of blessing, that the blessings are over here, but you find yourself here, and that sin is such a strong flow, you're not sure how to get through it. You're not sure how you can make it across to where the Lord wants you to be. And the Jordan River is analogous to that. And what we're going to see today is that the Lord brings them through that strong flow and into the promises, and so does the Lord in our life. You need to know, Christian, that ultimately the Lord is bigger than your mistakes. Amen? He's bigger than our mistakes. And there are many times where we get ourselves hemmed in and cut off because of the consequences of bad choices. But God is merciful and faithful, and He's bigger than our mistakes. The next thing that the Jordan River is analogous of in our Christian lives are those impossible obstacles. Those obstacles that we come across that just seem insurmountable. It's just a part of life. It's just a reality of living. But when we see it, we say to ourselves, how will I ever get through this? I don't know how I'm going to get through this. Or I don't know how I'm going to get over this. Or I can't see how I'm ever going to make it around this difficulty. And that's how they felt about the Jordan River. There they were, camped out for three days, looking at this thing saying, we, we, they're, they're, we're not, we're not, how are we going to get through this? There's no way that we're going to make it through this thing. Those impossibilities in life. All things are possible with Christ Jesus, the Bible says. And he's bigger than the obstacles. And if you have faith of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be moved, and it'll be moved. Our God is a God that moves mountains. He's a God that parts seas and breaks apart rivers, and we're going to see that today. He's bigger than our seeming impossible obstacles. The next thing that Jordan River points to for you and I is true surrender. True surrender. Because when they crossed that Jordan, it was that moment where Israel surrendered to the will of the Lord. They said, Lord, we're going to be where you want us to be. And that's what surrender is. It's you saying in your heart, God, I want to be where you want me to be. I want for my life what you want for my life. I surrender to your will. Now, Christians will readily pay lip service to that. Oh, what's the will of God? I want the will of God for my life, and I, I want to be where God wants me to be. But when it gets to the nitty-gritty, it's not that often that we actually go after that. There are many ways in our lives that we refuse to surrender all too often. No, Lord, I, I'm not going to let you have this area. It's too painful. I don't want to go there. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want that out in the open. No, Lord, I'm not giving you access to that area, and that's refusing to surrender. Or no, Lord, I'm not giving that thing up. Quite frankly, Lord, I feel like I deserve it and I like it. I'm going to keep doing it. You might not use that phraseology, but that's the inward attitude when we refuse to surrender those things that the Lord is calling us to surrender. Or it may be some hurt or some bitterness. And to you, because you've had it for so long, it's become a, a symbol of home to you. Home being what you know. It's gotten comfortable for you. It's painful, yes, but it's all you know. And you've known it for so long that you don't, want it to, you don't want to let it go. And the Lord is saying, I want to free you from that. I want to free you from that thing. I want to heal you from that thing. But in our sickness, we hold on to that. And that's an unwillingness to surrender. And the Jordan is a picture of absolute surrender. Going where God wants us to go in the grand scheme of our lives and in the minutia of it. God, where do you want me to be? And then really go in there. That's what Israel's doing as they cross the Jordan. The next thing that it symbolizes for us is a line of demarcation. A line of demarcation. Demarcation being defined this way. The process of deciding on and fixing land boundaries. The division of something so that its divided parts are separate and identifiable. There needs to be some demarcation in the life of a Christian. Some separation from the world and the things of the world and what the world engages in and holds and esteems and values and follows. There needs to be some clearly delineated lines of separation. A point where you say in your Christian life, I'm not going there. I don't do that. That doesn't please my Lord. And I've been bought from hell. I've been redeemed. I'm no longer my own. And I love my Jesus. And he defined me loving him as me obeying him. And so I'm going to obey the Lord. And so I'm drawing a line right here. I'm not crossing that. I'm hemming myself in. I'm not going there. There's a line of demarcation. Maybe it's an old thing that you used to do. I leave the past behind and press on toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, as Paul the Apostle said in Philippians 3. 
Maybe it's some relationships and you, you got to set some boundaries, you know what I mean? Maybe it's a sin that you keep falling into, but it's because you haven't drawn a line of demarcation that says don't go beyond this. This is the old life. You're new in Christ Jesus. Don't engage in the old things. And so there's got to come a point in the Christian life where we draw some lines, where we stop making provision for the flesh. And then the last thing that's analogous to, which dovetails with a line of demarcation, is just the idea of moving on. You see, when they crossed the Jordan, they would forever move on from the wilderness experience and into the full promises of God. And so it becomes for us th that mark of moving on, leaving the wilderness experience. And some of you as Christians today, you know what? Your Christian experience has been one of wilderness. You just feel like you've just been me meandering and spinning your wheels and, and just dry times. The Lord wants to give you a Jordan experience today. He wants to bring you out of the wilderness and into the promises, into the fullness. If, if you're experiencing dry times, the Lord has so much more for you. Be asking the Lord today, Lord, what, what do you want me to do? Lord, how should I respond to what you're speaking to me? I want the fullness. I don't want to stay in this dry place. And so that Jordan experience of crossing over becomes a symbol of moving on from the old life and from the wilderness and into the fullness of life in Christ. And once again, the prerequisite for experiencing the fullness is consecration, as it says in verse 5. Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And I just want to repeat a phrase that I gave you last week. And this really made me think a lot this, this past week. I believe that we would have more tomorrows full of the wonder and power of God if we had more todays full of consecration and sanctification. If we more often today would choose to consecrate ourselves unto the Lord, to put off those filthy things, to put on Christ Jesus, we'd have more tomorrows of wonder. I mean, don't you want to see more of the power of God in your life? More of the presence of Christ in your life? Don't you want more of that and less of this stuff? Then the requirement of that is, is, is that we would wash ourselves, cleanse ourselves, so to speak. Now, we've been washed in the blood, amen? Somebody get Pentecostal on me, Amen. We have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, white as snow, forgiven. We have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. But there is in the Old and in the New Testament this concept that we must also wash ourselves. That is just putting off those deeds of the flesh, putting off those things of the old life, just laying them aside and putting on the armor of light and the person of Christ Jesus. And we would see more of the power and the presence of God in our individual and corporate lives tomorrow if we would have more consecration and sanctification in our lives today. Amen? And that brings us to verse 6. And Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over ahead of the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went ahead of the people. Now the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. Two things going on in these verses. Number one, the Lord is reminding Joshua of what he's already told him. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 5, he told him, the Lord told Joshua, I will be with you just as I have been with Moses. And now the Lord is telling him again. And I love that the Lord is like that. You know what I mean? Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would remind us of all the things that the Lord has taught us. And the Lord teaches us all kinds of stuff all the time. If you're reading through the Bible in a year with us, as many of you are, the Lord is speaking to you every single day when you open that book. Every single day. Don't miss it. The Lord is speaking to you. And He's speaking to you all sorts of things. And what I love is that the Holy Spirit is a reminder, among many other things. He will come and remind us at the opportune moment. And now Joshua knows that this is about the moment where we're going to cross over and the Spirit of God speaks to him. He says, Joshua, just as I was with Moses, I'll be with you. He had told him that before. But can't you see the, the little heart of Josh going, oh, that's right. Okay, cool. Wow, thank you, Lord. Yes, you already told me that. You're telling me again. I, I believe that. So I think it's important when the Lord speaks to you that you write those things down. You know what I mean? The Lord will remind you, but I've discovered in my life, often He reminds me as I've 
written things down. For example, in my Bible, as I'm reading through it, I make little prayer notes in my margins. I made sure to buy a Bible with big, wide margins, and I write all in them. And so as I'm reading through, as the Lord ministers to me in an area or busts me on something, anybody know what I'm talking about? You're reading through the Word, and you come across a chapter, and you're, oh, oh. And I'll just write right there in the margin, Lord, forgive me for this. Lord, please help me with this. I want to grow in this way and in that way. And then I'll date it. So I'll write it in there and I'll date it. And it's journaling. I don't keep a journal. I keep it right here. And it's journaling. And I'll write. And as I've been reading through the one-year Bible again, you know, I've read through the Old Testament several times. I've come across dozens of times my little prayers there. And you know what? The Lord has answered everyone I've come across. Every one of them that I've come across, not to say that I'm fully there yet, but the Lord is moving in all of those areas. And I've been able to track my spiritual progress, you know what I mean? And in that, because I was disciplined to write down what the Lord was showing me, then God was faithful to remind me when I got there. Oh yeah, Lord, you've already taught me about this. Oh yeah, Lord, you're dealing with me in that area. Oh yeah, Lord, you gave us that prophetic word. You're gonna accomplish that thing. I love that the Lord is so kind to remind us. Who are we that he would be mindful of us, much less remind us? But he's so kind in that he does that at the moment of need. And he's reminding Joshua. And the second thing he's doing with Joshua here is he's telling him that he's going to exalt him in the sight of the people. Now, he had done it with Moses in Exodus 14 when, uh, you know, he, he used Moses as an instrument as Moses lifted his hand there to part the Red Sea. Then Moses was exalted as a leader in the sight of the people. Nobody had a question anymore. They went, wow, God's hand is on Mo. There's no question about it. God's hand is on this guy. We're going to follow this guy. God is using him. And throughout the Bible and throughout history, when God wants to work, God raises up a person. And God puts his spirit upon that person. And God gives that person spiritual authority. And then what, that, what God does is he gives that person favor with the people that he's to lead. And that's what he's going to do for Joshua. He's saying, Joshua, remember how everybody went, wow, Moses, yeah, God's hand is on him. We're fully going to like follow him. Well, now people are going to do that for you, not with you. Not that you would be exalted, but that people would know that I have chosen a leader in Israel. And God always appoints leaders. And when God's hand is on somebody, it's obvious. And if you're to follow them as they follow Christ, if you're to be a part of their ministry or what have you, then it, it will be your joy to submit to that. You'll see that and you'll see God's hand and you'll go, I'm stoked, man. This guy's a full-on bozo, but God's hand is on him. And that's what God does when he chooses a person. He gives them authority and then he gives them stature. And both of those are included in effective spiritual leadership. And they're not the glory of man. I didn't say he gives them a pedestal and fame. It's not the words. It's not what I said. I said he gives them authority and stature. Very different from a pedestal and fame. People try to ascribe pedestals and fames to God's leaders. That's wrong. God gives them authority and stature that he might accomplish his purposes through them. And that brings us to verse 8. He says to Joshua, the Lord speaking to Joshua, you shall moreover command the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, saying, when you come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Now you've got to catch this. The Lord gives Joshua here very limited information. There's 500 years of prophetic energy built up in this moment. There's 500 years of prophetic history weighing in on this moment. And all that's separating them from that land of Canaan where they would discover Bethlehem where Christ would be born and Jerusalem where he will one day reign and where he was crucified and rose from the dead and the Galilee and all those wonderful things. All it is is that Jordan River. And the Lord just said to Joshua, I'm going to exalt you in the sight of the people. And then he continues to speak to Joshua. Now, if I were Joshua, I would be thinking here, okay, this is awesome. God's going to give me the game plan. God's going to give me the game plan. Lord, how are we going to get across the Jordan? We've been camped out here for three days. Every MacGyver in Israel has been coming up to, jo to Joshua going, I know how we could get across and we could build this and that and so on and so forth. And nobody can figure it out. And the Lord is speaking to Joshua, and I imagine that Joshua is waiting for the game plan. Oh, yeah, Lord, the people will do it. Yeah, if I go and tell them this is how we're going to do it, they're going to be stoked. The Lord doesn't tell them that. The Lord just gives them a little snippet. He says, tell the priests that when they come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan, to stand still in the Jordan. And the Lord stops speaking. I imagine Joshua went, 
Lord, where'd you go? I bad reception right here, Lord. I don't know. I lost you. Hello? Hello? Are you there? Lord, what? There's got to be something more. Okay, they walk in. They stand still. And? Hello? And? He would be expecting that there's more because nobody ever stood in a river that's in flood season almost a mile wide and got through it. That's all the Lord tells him. He's causing Joshua to have to exercise faith as a leader because now Joshua's got to go face the people with what he knows. See, God's leaders are not supposed to have all the answers. They're just supposed to be faithful to what God has told them. And that's all that God told them. And so Joshua now goes to speak to the people in verse 9. Then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite and the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, the Jebusite, the Termite, the Tite-Tite, the Flashlight. <laughs> you should never laugh at that. <laughs> Verse 11, Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. Now then, Take for yourselves 12 men from among the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe. Tuck that detail away until next week. That's a little surprise for next week. Just tuck verse 12 away. Verse 13. And it shall come about when the souls, okay, this is Joshua speaking to Israel, when the souls of the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. Stop right there. That's as much as the Lord had previously told Joshua. That's as much as Joshua knew. That's all he had heard from the Lord. Then he says, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off and the waters which are flowing down from above shall stand in one heap. There's two things going on here as he speaks to the people. One is that he's prophesying. He's prophesying. He said, come and hear the word of the Lord. And as he's speaking, it comes to a point where he begins to speak about more than what he knew. And he imparts knowledge to the people that could not have been attained by natural means, nor did he know it previously. That's prophecy. He is prophesying by the Spirit of God. And that's functioning in his life because he was walking in faith. The Lord had told him a little bit, and he said, okay, I'm going before the people, and I'm going to begin to just communicate to them, Lord, what you told me. That was a hard place for him to be, trying to stand in the shoes of Moses and not having much information. But he was obeying the Lord. And he was stepping out in faith. And so at the perfect moment, the Lord speaks through him prophetically and gives him the rest of the story. That the waters of the Jordan will be cut off and stand in one heap. So the first thing that happens in his little speech here to the people is he speaks prophetically to them. The other thing that's very often, obvious excuse me, is that Joshua is magnifying the Lord in his little speech and not himself. That was also faith. Because the Lord said, I'm going to exalt you in the sight of the people. Now, here's what often we do with the promises of God. We hear the promises of God and we go, oh, yes, Lord, that is good. And we grab it and we try to run with it. We try to take them into our own hands. We try to finish in the flesh what was begun in the spirit, like those in the book of Galatians. And so had he been in the flesh, you know, I'm going to exalt you in the sight of the people. Joshua might have taken that and run with it. And as he stood before the people said, now I'm your great leader. Now, Mo is dead. Get over it. I'm the man now. And I'm going to take you through the Jordan. And I'm going to bring you into the promises. And you're going to follow me. And I'm going to have my own book in the Bible. <laughs> Those are the kind of things you hear from a leader who's in the flesh. Who's self-absorbed. Instead of God-honoring. He magnified the Lord. He talked about the Lord. He said the Lord of glory the Lord of all the earth. When you see the ark of the Lord, then the Lord shall do thus and so. And that's, that's a true sign of spiritual leadership. True spiritual leadership focuses the eyes of God's people on God and His greatness, not on a man. Amen? The last thing I want you to notice about Joshua's speech here is that he's just reminding him one more time to just be careful to obey the Lord. He's just encouraging them to trust and obey the Lord. Because this is one of those pivotal moments where it's, it's not really cool for anybody to mess it up. You know what I mean? Israel is in this together, and this is such an important moment. And, and Joshua says, okay, guys, let's trust 
and obey the Lord in this moment. Now, I think there are moments in the Christian life where we've got to really be mindful of that same concept. Where we've got to kind of stop and look at the situation. Just stop and think a little bit. And, and just look at what is at stake here. What are the consequences here? What do I stand to lose? What do I stand to win? What is the situation here? And then I think there's moments where we've got to realize this is, this is too big to mess up. I can't play games here. I can't be playing Christianity here. I can't be fooling around. I can't be presuming upon cheap grace here. I've really got to obey the Lord. And as we were told in Joshua chapter 1, be careful to observe all that is written in the Word and not turn to the right or the left of it. Then we will be prosperous and have success. And there are those moments in life, people, where we need to slow down and say, Lord, what are you doing and what do you want me to do? I don't want to miss it. I don't want to mess it up. And what spurs us on in that is the realization that there are wonderful blessings in obedience. Our relationship with God is not performance-oriented. He gave Jesus to die on the cross for us when we were in our sins. It's not about our performance. But there are blessings that we put ourselves in the place of receiving when we obey the Lord. Everybody always asks, how do I know the will of God? Obey the word of God. It's very simple. If you will obey the Lord in the little things, you'll find yourself in the will of God in all things. It's really that simple. Everybody wants to make it so mysterious and so esoteric. Obey the Lord. Don't turn to the right or the left, and you will one day find yourself in the middle of God's will in all things. And when we obey the Lord, we find ourselves in God's will. Then we're in the place of blessing. We have logistically put ourselves in the place where God can pour out blessings because we're not in disobedience. We're not going in the wrong direction. And from Genesis to Revelation, God communicates to his people how willing he is to bless them if they'll just obey. Again, it's not a performance thing. It's a logistic thing. It's honoring God and getting ourselves in that place of being in his will where he works. And if you guys have been reading the Old Testament with us in the one-year Bible reading, you've come across several if-then statements in the Old Testament. They're all throughout where God says, if you obey me, then I will do this. And then it always follows with, but if you choose to ignore me, then this will happen. I want you to see a wonderful one that surely Joshua would have had in his mind at this moment in Leviticus 26. Keep your finger in Joshua. Go to Leviticus 26. You guys read Leviticus 26 just a few days ago in your one-year Bible reading. Leviticus 26, starting in verse 3. The Lord speaking to Israel. Leviticus 26, 3. The Lord says, If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, then, you see the if-then statement there? If you walk in my statutes, verse 4, then I shall give you rains in their season, so that the land of the yield, or so that the land will yield its produce, and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. Indeed, your threshing will last until your grape gathering, and your grape gathering until your sowing time. You will thus eat your food to the full and live securely in the land. I shall also grant peace in the land, so that you may lie down with no one making you tremble. I will also eliminate harmful beasts from the land, and no sword will pass through your land. But you will chase your enemies, and they will fall before you by the sword. Five of you are going to chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. So I will turn toward you and make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will confirm my covenant with you. And you will eat the old supply and clear out the old because there's new. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, so that you should not be their slaves. And I broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. Look at what the Lord said he would do. 
I am sure this was in Israel's mind, definitely in Joshua's mind, because he's been studying the word. We know that. He's been getting up early in the morning. This was in his mind as he was leading these people across, and he's just saying effectually to these guys, come on, guys, let's do it right this time. Let's obey the Lord, because look at what the Lord is willing to do. The Lord said that he would satisfy them, that he'd make them fruitful, that he'd give them security, that their threshing would last until the grapes came and the grapes would last until the sowing. They would never be in want. They would never be without. When they lied down, they wouldn't be fearful of anybody. And just one of them could put a bunch of the enemy to flight and their enemy would perish. The Lord even said there in verse 6 that he would remove harmful beasts from the land. Look how good the Lord was willing to be to his people. I mean, the Lord is more willing to bless us than we're willing to be blessed. I'm convinced of it. And the Lord said, I will do all these good things. And beyond that, I will give you my presence. I will dwell in the midst of you and I will be your God. All you got to do is obey. If you obey, then you'll walk where you ought to walk and you'll be in the place of blessing. Now, the whole rest of the chapter is an if-then concerning disobedience. I'm not going to take time to read it. I'm hoping we could stop right here. I'm hoping that we'll get the obedience part and go, I don't, I don't need to know about the consequences. I don't want that if then. I, I just want to if obey the Lord. Then all these blessings come into my life. And I think there's moments where we got to stop and go, man, maybe these consequences are too big for me to continue in this sin. Maybe there's too much at stake here. Maybe there's too much that I might lose. And maybe there's too much that the Lord has for me if I would just obey. That helps me in my daily obedience. Back to Joshua now. As we finish the chapter, Joshua chapter 3, picking it up in verse 14. So it came about when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with a priest carrying the ark of the covenant before the people, that when those who carried the ark came into the Jordan, and the feet of the priests carrying the ark were dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of the harvest that the waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap at a great distance away at Adam, the city that is beside Zeraton. And those which were flowing down toward the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, that is the Dead Sea, we'll visit it on a trip to Israel this year, were completely cut off. So the people crossed opposite Jericho. And the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan. And all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. Notice what it said there in verse 16. Or excuse me, verse 15. At the end, that the Jordan overflows all its banks at the days of the harvest. Something to say about God's timing. Very simply put, God's timing is very seldom our timing. His ways are just not our ways, are they? It's just not that often that we think like the Lord. His ways are higher than our ways. And, and as we survey the land and the situation, we, we think, oh, this would be perfect timing. And here is how it ought to work out. But you know what? God sees all things. And he's all wise. And he knows the beginning from the end. And we're working on a very limited amount of knowledge. It's very arrogant. To say tomorrow we shall go here and there, do thus and so. James chapter 4 says we shouldn't say that. James chapter 4 says we should say, if the Lord wills, we will go here and do thus and so. The Lord's timing is very seldom our timing. And what I find about the Lord's timing is it's not always convenient for you and I. He brought them to the Jordan at the time of the harvest when it was overflowing its banks. If it wasn't the harvest season, it would have been easier for them to deal with. The Jordan was much smaller at that time. They probably could have devised a way to get around it. But during a big uh, harvest season with a lot of snowmelt, the Jordan in this area could approach, could approach well over a half mile in width. And that was just an insurmountable thing for them. But that was not a mistake. It's not as though they got there at harvest time and they saw, oh no, the river's overflowing its banks. And the Lord went, oh, wow. I'm sorry, guys. I didn't know. I didn't see that coming. The Lord knew. The Lord brought them there at that exact moment. Because listen, the Lord calls us to walk by faith. He calls us to walk by faith. And that, that means we're going to have to confront some difficulties. And remember that, that the will of God is not often the path of least resistance. The path of least resistance like a river yields a crooked life. And Jesus said about that path that it's a broad way and many are those who are on it. But narrow is the way that leads to life and few are those who are on it. 
And the Lord brought him to this moment at the perfect time and brought him when the harvest was happening and the banks were overflowing because they would need to exercise faith and because God would get all the glory. Because God would get all the glory. And so there they are, staring at that thing, wondering about the Lord's timing. And what they had to do now was just take the proverbial steps of faith. I mean, these are the quintessential steps of faith. This is textbook here. The priest carrying the ark had to step forward into the Jordan. They had to get their feet wet. When they got their feet wet, we're told that the Lord would cut the river off and he would cause it to stand up in a heap. But notice, the Lord would not do it one moment before. They had to exercise the faith to go into a very full river. The Lord had told them, now they had to do it. And that's exactly what faith that pleases the Lord is. Hearing the word of God and responding to it. It's very simple. That's exactly what it is. God told them what he would do, but he wasn't going to do it until they responded in faith and obedience. That's, that's very poignant. God told them what he would do, but he would not do it until they responded to what he said with faith and obedience. So they had, then had to step out in that river before the waters would stop. You see, what we like is we want to see the dry ground first. That's what we want. We want to see the dry ground and go, oh, I'll obey you, Lord. Oh, I'm walking in faith now. And then we'll go across the river. That's not faith. Faith is when you don't see any dry ground anywhere and the thing is overflowing its banks and there is no hope but the Lord and you just do what he says even though it doesn't make sense even in the timing or the manner. You just do what the Lord said. That was what the, the man with a withered hand in Mark chapter 3 had to do. Remember Mark chapter 3, Jesus was in a synagogue and there's a man with a withered hand and Jesus wanted to heal him. And Jesus said, stretch forth your hand. Now that's the very point. He couldn't stretch forth his hand. It was withered. Hello. He couldn't do that. It had been withered his whole life. And Jesus has the audacity to say to him, you want to be healed? Then stretch forth your hand. And at that moment, he had a faith decision to make. He could have said, what are you talking about? I've never done that. My hand's been withered my whole life. I've never stretched it. What do you, what do you mean stretch it forward? I've never done that. I can't do that. I don't understand that. But he didn't do that. He made a faith decision. And so in faith, he stretched forth his hand and experienced that he was healed. The Lord wasn't going to heal him until he stretched it forth. You see, what we would like is, Lord, heal me, and then I'll stretch out. The Lord says, no, you stretch that thing, and in that, I will heal you. That's the way that the Lord works. The Lord's commandments are his enablements. He told Israel, you get your feet wet. You get in the water, and I will stop that strong flow. Same thing with the lepers. Ten lepers came to Jesus in Luke chapter 17, wanted to be healed. Jesus said, okay, you want to be healed? Fine. Go show yourself to the priest and offer a sacrifice for a leper who's been healed. They go, we're not healed yet. I know. Go show yourself to the priest and offer a sacrifice for a leper who's been healed. They had to walk away from Jesus in faith that he was going to heal them because he said to go act as if they were healed. That's poignant and profound, powerful. They had to go and prepare a sacrifice and talk to the priests about being healed when they hadn't been healed because the Lord said to do so. And you know the rest of the story. When they walked away from Jesus and they began to go and obey that command, then they were healed. Every single one of them, 10 lepers, healed in an instant. They weren't healed before they obeyed, though. It's just often the way the Lord works. We want the Lord to do it first and then we'll obey. Listen, He already did it on the cross of Jesus Christ. We ought to shut up and obey. Stretch forth your hand, you'll be healed. Go show yourself to the priest, you'll be healed. Step in the river, get your feet wet, take those steps of faith, and then it will become as dry ground. And you know, if I know the Lord, they probably stood in the water for some time. Doesn't it seem like the Lord just loves the 11th hour rescue? You know, when the disciples are in the boat and they're sinking, Jesus didn't come at the first watch of the night, which is from 6 to 9. No. He didn't come at the second watch of the night, which is 9 to midnight. No. He didn't come at the third watch of the night, which is midnight to 3 a.m. No. He waited until the fourth watch of the night, which is 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. before he came. Now, the disciples got in the boat before it was dark. 
He left them in the boat despairing for their lives for nine hours, and then he came. Why? Oh, he's just mean. No. Come on, it's the Lord. Because there was a work that was accomplished in their hearts. You see, they came to the end of themselves. They exhausted all their resources, all their know-how, all their what-ifs. They exhausted all of them. And all that they had left, all they could do was hope in the Lord. And that's where God wants his people. In a place of saying, Lord, all I have is you. That is where we're supposed to be. It's just trusting in the Lord that way. And, and so if I were to wager here, and we don't have the details of it, I bet they stood in that water for some time. All of Israel watching. 500 years of prophetic history. Can you imagine watching the priests with the ark begin to go toward that water? I imagine that they just stopped at the edge and just went, okay, here we go, boys. And they stepped in, and all of Israel, about two and a half million people at this time, would just be going, <laughs> just waiting to see what would happen. I wonder how much time elapsed and what that did in the heart of Israel and in the heart of the priests. Remember Noah? The Lord messed with him something fierce. Noah. The Lord said, Noah, build a boat. There's going to be a flood. Understand, build a boat. They're in the desert. No ocean anywhere near. Understand, there's going to be a flood. It's never yet rained in history. Read the book of Genesis. Rain has not happened yet. There's always dew on the ground. Build a boat. It's going to flood. We're in the desert. It's never rained. Build the boat, Noah. Noah starts to build the boat. People are walking by. Noah, what are you doing? I'm building the boat. The Lord said so. It's going to flood. That was the first year. But after about 112 years of building the boat, no rain, no ocean, desert. Hey, Noah! What are you doing? I'm building a boat. I'm building a boat in the desert. No ocean, no rain, nothing. I'm building a boat. The Lord said so. Why? I don't know, man. <laughs> and then it comes a time, and the Lord says, Noah, take you and your family and get in the boat with all the animals, and the Lord closes the door. Now, if you're Noah, you're fully expecting, it's going to rain. This is awesome. Now they'll all see. Watch. I imagine Noah standing on the deck with his family and all the animals. Watch. Have you read the story? It doesn't rain. A day goes by, it doesn't rain. Two days, no rain. Three days, no rain. Four days, no rain. Five days, six days, seven days. Can you imagine what was happening in the heart of Noah? In the boat with those stinking animals. Seven days. There's thousands of people, I'm sure, gathered around going, Hey, Noah. What are you doing? What are you doing? Seven days he's waiting. Listen, the Lord doesn't do those sorts of things because he's cruel. The Lord does those sorts of things because our hearts are hard. And he accomplishes a wonderful work in the heart of man. When that hard ground is broken up, when that fallow ground is plowed up, and it's made soft by having childlike dependence on the Lord of coming to the place of understanding that we can't understand, of knowing that we don't know, of realizing that we can't do, of finally surrendering and saying, Lord, you're all I've got. All my hope is in you. And the Lord says, good, good. That's where the Lord wants us to be. I wonder how long they stood in that river. In verse 17, I love how it says it. And the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. When it's the Lord, it's thorough. When the Lord, it's thorough and it's right. They crossed on dry ground. Nobody got across the Jordan into the promised land and had to wipe muddy Jordan feet. Oh, now praise the Lord. Lord brought us over, but he ruined my sandals. <laughs> Nobody did that. When it's the Lord, it's thorough and it's right and it's good. They went through on dry ground. And notice it says multiple times, all of them. Not one was left behind. The Lord was so faithful. The Lord said he would bring them all in. And the Lord brought every single one of them in. And the last thing I'll say is don't miss this picture. 
Remember, the ark of the God was to lead them in. The ark of God was to lead them in. They were to stay uh, 2,000 cubits, 1,000 yards, six-tenths of a mile back from that thing so that everyone in the whole nation had a clear view of the ark of God. The ark of God would go before them. But then when the ark of God got into the middle of the Jordan, representing the presence, person, and power of God, the ark stopped there and was in the middle of the people as they crossed over. They would have kept that over a half-mile boundary, and they would have just been crossing through the Jordan on dry ground, watching the ark just tripping out, just, whoa, dry ground, ark of God, here we go, promised land. And the ark of God was in their midst. And what happened once they got over? Then the ark of God came behind them. That's exactly who the Lord wants to be in your life. He wants to go before you, he wants to be camped out in your midst, and he wants to be your rear guard. That's who he was for Israel. In the moment of impossibility, he went before them. He was in the midst of them, and he was a rear guard in the midst of it all. He is the first, and he's the last, and he's the great I am. He's the one who was, and is to come, and is now. He's a pre-existent one, he's a coming king, and he's Emmanuel, God with us now. The Lord is so good. The Lord is so faithful. What are the Jordans in your life? God is bigger than those things. And he will take you through the impossible step by step. All you got to do is believe and obey. Amen? Yeah. Lord, thank you so much for instructing us. Thank you for encouraging us. And Lord, you've encouraged each of us as individuals, because you know our hearts. And right now, we just ask that, Holy Spirit, you would come, that you would establish a very holy atmosphere here, that you might just accomplish some great work now in our hearts, applying your word. So, Holy Spirit, come now. You know our Jordans, you know the giants, you know the fears, you know the self-confidence, you know the strong flows and the mistakes and the consequences. And you're bigger than all of them, Lord. So I just ask that you'd come now and minister to your children. Do a deep work in us now, Lord, as we bask in your presence, as we soak in your glory. If God has spoke to you today, I invite you to put a move on that. Physically, spiritually, do something about it. Carpets are up here for you to come get on your face. Many times in the Bible when God spoke to someone, they got on their face because he's a holy God. Carpets are here. Communion is here. If you need help, the prayer team is up here to your right. Let's press into the Lord. Let him finish his work in us.